Great to have you brothers on. I'll let you introduce yourselves though. I'm Jake Fitzsimano. I live here in West Valley City, Utah, in uh, the land of the, the Goshus, the Shoshones and the Utes. And I'm uh, happy to be here today and uh, always, always a good time. Talanoa uh, with you folks and learning as well. I'm out here. Basically, my full time job is I'm I'm a husband. I'm a dad to two little girls, and in order to make the kind of money to support that lifestyle, I gotta have a full time job too. So I'm uh, I work for Utah's uh, largest healthcare system, Intermountain Health. I'm a program manager in community health. So my academic background is in community health and population health. And I, I really have an interest in the disparities that our Pacific Islander people face when it comes to chronic diseases and different uh, health dynamics in the community, which is also the topic that I teach as an adjunct at the University of Utah in ethnic studies. And uh, in my spare time, I, I serve on the city council here in West Valley City as well. What don't you do, Jake? I mean, what you didn't mention too, right, is if you want to get some good food in Salt Lake, or anywhere in Utah, Jake knows the spots <laughs> and the uh, chefs. <laughs> and to answer your question of what I don't do is uh, exercise. <laughs> That's the only thing I don't do. <laughs> oh man, Noke. Okay. My name is Inoke Alfoka. Born and raised here in uh, uh, the land of the Goshoot U Shoshone as well, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, specifically Glendale. I'm uh, married with uh, four kids. Currently getting ready to to make a move here in a little bit to Oahu, Hawaii. I've uh, accepted a position as a assistant professor in Pacific Studies and History at Brigham Young University of Hawaii. So we'll be kind of making our way out there in the next few months. But I've just been a schoolboy for a very long time. I think I was like, what, 25th grade? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was it was good times, man. Now now it's the real world and putting all the stuff that I've uh, learned and, and kind of putting into to practice, I guess. But yeah, been teaching with Jake at the University of Utah as well within ethnic studies. Uh, taught courses around intro to Pacific Island studies, Tongan American and Tongan diaspora, as well as uh, courses around history. It's kind of what I've been doing. I'm also a shout out to to those who work in the airlines. Been with the airlines for about eleven years now, and still going strong. <laughs> um, the thing that's uh, allowed me to get from one place to another around the world. So yeah, that's me. Also, because Nook is a little bit modest as well, he was recently depicted in one of the community murals or paintings. If you're in Glendale just because of his uh, prominent role as a community member for a long time. So you can go you. check out his, uh, his profile painting there. I mean, we can get into whatever, but I did want to have a chance to um, just ask you to share a little bit of the backstory of uh, the Malofie that you received, uh, Jake, and, and 
tatatao that you've received, uh, Inoke, been a multiple year process um, due to kind of beginning before the pandemic and and then kind of dealing with uh, the big kind of climax of that. Um, but we'll, I guess, start with you, Jake, and then shift over to Inoke. Just any kind of backstory or background you, you're comfortable sharing to give people a little bit of context to this big event that happened recently uh, in Utah. Yeah, I think just to build a little bit of context, I think it's it's surprising to a lot of folks to learn that Utah, of all places, is actually one of the largest populations per capita of Pacific Islanders in the United States. And um, I think to start there, just like Noke said, the community that he was uh, born and raised in, you know, this this dynamic that that creates in a state like Utah, which most people would assume, which is majority white, but um, most people wouldn't know that in some parts of the state, especially in the communities where uh, we live uh, and where um, you're from as well, Daniel, really there are minority majority enclaves within that. And in fact, the city that I live in, West Valley City is a minority majority, even the city overall. And so we have a very, very long history of Pacific Islanders here, starting back to what could be called the quote unquote pioneer days. I mean, the 1870s, we have records of Pacific Islanders being here, specifically Hawaiians in the 1880s and Samoans, uh, Maoris, Tongans coming a little bit later. And so this community on one hand is actually quite an old community. We now have families that have been here for four or five generations. And at the same time, it's a very recent immigrant diasporic community with folks arriving here directly from the islands or through other countries and other states um, on the daily, pretty much. And so it's an interesting dynamic to uh, be witnessing and experiencing and seeing any type of Pacific Islander um, cultural expressions here. And Tatao is definitely one of those. And uh, this is a cool topic because it's, uh, it's very relevant uh, to the themes that many of us in the diaspora um, live with and, and ponder on and, and talk about in terms of identity, in terms of preserving language and culture, in terms of creating spaces where these cultural dynamics and cultural practices can still be appreciated and valued, not just in a performative way, but in a meaningful way that could be passed down to those who come after us. And so for me, it's, um, you know, receiving the, the Tatao was kind of a, a lifelong uh, pursuit or desire. Uh, when I was like 18 or 19, uh, my dad's mom actually encouraged me to, to go and do it when I was that young and gave me the money and said, hey, this, you know, you should do it. And um, I wasn't ready at that time for sure, but over the years, uh, of, of learning more and seeing, you know, my dad's brothers and my own first cousins and other members of my family uh, on his, on my dad's mom's side of the family specifically, it continued to be something that was always in my heart. And when the time uh, was right and the stars aligned uh, in terms of, you know, being able to bring a uh, Tufunga here to Utah, which again, uh, something that folks question regarding legitimacy or credibility uh, but we felt, my soa, my partner and I felt that, yeah, it would be easier. It, logistically, it would be easier. And financially, it would be cheaper for us to just go to Samoa, just the two of us, go do it, spend a few weeks and come back. 
but because it really wasn't just about receiving these marks. Um, it was more about creating an experience and allowing our children, nieces, nephews, community members, our, our friends to be able to participate. And because we didn't have enough money to fly everybody to Samoa, uh, we decided to do the opposite and bring someone here uh, to be able to, to participate uh, as a communal activity among our own family and friends here. And so that's, that's where it really started. And, um, you know, a lot of different steps involved in terms of um, selecting or, or choosing who we wanted as a Tufunga. And, uh, and then while in that selection process, working out the logistics of, um, you know, how to bring folks here. We had a major complication when it came to COVID because our Tufunga arrived here. Um, Li'ai Faiva came here uh, in February 2019, uh, 2020, right before uh, COVID you know, really became full blown. And so halfway through the, the process or maybe not even halfway through our group, um, Samoa was closing his borders, you know, Aotearoa, New Zealand was uh, sending messages, you know, through the embassy and saying, hey, folks can, should be coming back. You know, we don't know what's gonna be happening in terms of uh, the border situation. And so uh, we waited two years, almost to the, to the same day, but two years to the same week uh, to be able to bring uh, Tufunga back uh, to finish the rest of the group and, and to finish our tau. And so it was, as you said, uh, it was a long journey, a convoluted journey with a lot of uh, emotional roller coasters uh, in between. But it was something that uh, I think I'm still processing uh, in terms of, you know, this is not something that is just a one and done. The tau is going to be a tool for learning. It's going to be an expression of service. It's going to be um, and, and the meaning of those things are going to change throughout our lifetimes. And so it's something that I definitely appreciate being able to go through with my family, with my friends here in my own home and uh, looking forward to um, supporting those and, and uh, being able to help, you know, those who come uh, through this journey, who take this voyage, uh, you know, after us and, and being able to support. Yeah. So for me, I, you know, I, don't, I grew up, not understanding much about Tadatao and, and the role that Tatao has within the Tongan community. You know, you'd hear stories or you hear certain things, but nothing that's that kind of stuck in my memory. Um, and it wasn't until Jake had gone, on, gone under the owl where uh, he had mentioned some things to me and mentioned that you know, two other Tongans were getting ready to to to, to get their marks. Um, and I just didn't understand. I, part of me was just like, oh, maybe they have someone and then two, so that's why they're doing it. And uh, it wasn't until um, Jake had shown me some articles that Tufunga kind of asked um, me. I thought he was joking. He was like, hey, are you next? I was like, no, I'm not next. <laughs> he was like, how come? I was like, oh, because I'm Tongan. Um, you know, this is a Samoan thing. And now, you know, this is not even too long ago, you know, a couple of years. And uh, I, I felt like I was, I, my, my mindset and my, my belief system was challenged. And I had, uh, you know, I was in school during that time. So I kind of went nerd mode on this as the Tufunga started telling me a little bit about the history of, of Tongans having their marks and, 
and Jake and others in the group started sharing other articles and it just kind of got me interested to to learn more but also observe how this practice has been cared for and, and nurtured throughout you know generations uh, within the Samoan community I thought that was beautiful you know I, I think for me it was something that I had to be really mindful of in approaching because there is no access for anybody here uh, especially here in the U.S. that that really touches and goes deep into what Taratao is for Tongans. You can get into specifics, I think, uh, in the Moana, where you can find Isaiah Toitu, who's a Tufuma out in Hawaii. You got Terry Kolomatangi, who's been practicing as well in Aotearoa. You know, Rodney Powell sounds like he's coming back and uh, maybe practicing again soon. But there's, there's really not much that uh, is out there and, and practitioners, at least, uh, on the Tongan side of things. So I, I think for me, it was just inspired by Jake and, and Nu'u and uh, yeah, Fui and Malakai, who, who began their process with the i 5 before he had to leave because of COVID. But, you know, they just got me kind of excited for the potential and the possibility of something like this. And in my, my whole life, I don't think I've ever cared for any marks on my body. But as I started to understand what these marks mean and could mean, the potential of learning more about it was was exciting. It was something new, something that, not necessarily new, but something that I maybe had reawakened within me of <laughs> uh, something that existed prior. And uh got me excited to to get close to a practice that our ancestors in Tonga uh, also practiced. And although it was banned and and slowly fizzled out from uh, practice, um, to be able to jump back into it and and be grateful for those who had kind of began that process back in the late 90s, early 2000s, if it wasn't for them, it would have been maybe a little bit more difficult and more challenging, even more pushback probably <laughs> than, than what we received uh, during this time. But yeah, uh, experience was, uh, was amazing and I'm grateful for Jake and them for being able to allow us to be a part of the experience. I think it was enough just to sit in the Apisa and, and uh, learn and, and, you know, share the pain that they were feeling uh, sitting cross-legged and all the, all the uh, logistics of what one should observe while uh, one is under the aisle. You know, that, that experience or, uh, alone was, was sacred and, and special. Uh, but then to take it a step further and, and uh, receive my marks, that was uh, something special for me. And, and the rest of the guys that were had the opportunity. So I I think what's exciting about it is that it started a conversation, good or bad or or ugly. <laughs> uh, at least people are, are now discussing it and, and talking about it and hopefully taking the time if they are serious to to learn about Talatao and and what each individual can bring into the conversation that has already existed uh, well beyond us. So Grateful for that and yep.
man, there's so much, and we're definitely not going to be able to cover everything, <laughs> you know, but this last, I guess I would argue that this last kind of decade is uh, kind of unique on this planet as far as information availability or exchange um, in the digital worlds um, that we have. You know, one of the great things is increased access, you know, to sharing stories and um, catalyzing conversations. Uh, one of the hard things, though, I think sometimes is uh, if you're just jumping online, sometimes there's just collisions of context. And uh, I feel like you got to put in some work to, to either contextualize where you're coming from or also to try to understand context from where others are coming from, because we're dealing with very different environments, both socially, politically, culturally. And uh, sometimes I think that can lead right to misinformation, misunderstanding, or, or talking past each other or whatnot. And so I, I'd like to, if you are open to it, maybe talking a little bit about um, meanings for you. Uh, we'll go back to Jake and then Noke. Um, and I know that, you know, we're using language that you know, make sense to us today. But even when we say things like Samoan or, or Tongan or assumptions we have around that, you know, a lot has changed from the origins of these practices and how societies and communities were organized to how we think about things today, um, you know, where we often think around national boundaries, which are actually quite recent in human history. Um, and even if we look at kind of the Samoan Fokapapa of, of Tatao, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Jake, but I understand, you know, there's connections back to even Viti or Fiji. Yeah? And so this region is so complex. And sometimes today we're forced to think about it in simple uh, categories that are maybe easy or convenient. But um, just wondering, throw, throw it to you, Jake, and then we'll pass to Noke. Um, just maybe your thoughts around kind of thinking about uh, this experience and how maybe it's opened up thinking about stuff in more complex ways or, or the multiple meanings that have existed or that may exist, as you mentioned. I like this topic. It's intriguing because Pacific history, the nature of history is, is already dual. It's not even dualistic, it's pluralistic. I can't in, in a good conscience say the history of Samoa or Pacific Islander history. Really, it's histories, you know, because depending on what perspective you're coming from or what regional variation of a story that you've heard or what uh, genealogy, what version your family subscribes to versus others who may have nuances in that, uh, there's still validity and there's still uh, room for growth and learning when we combine or when we juxtapose all of those different versions and bring them together rather than fighting over who's right and who's wrong. Let's bring all these narratives together and see what commonalities we find, see what repetitive recurring themes we find. And then that helps us to say, well, okay, I respect where you're coming from, but we now have at least an empirical basis to have a discussion back and forth. There's two things that Noke said that stood out to me um, in relation to what you asked. Uh, one is nerd mode, uh, which you know we could laugh about being nerds and it's cool. <laughs> but I think what he meant with that was he was able to use these academic approaches that we learn in higher ed to actually critically analyze and evaluate the sources that were being presented to him. And then he was able to use the privileges that we have, for example, you know, having a, a, like a library account where you can access all these books and all these online documents, having access to scholarly journals and publications that people typically have to pay for or subscribe to. But because we're associated with universities, either as students or instructors or what have you as staff, 
we're able to access these collections that the average, you know, my next, my next door neighbor or, you know, my brother who's not into this stuff or is not enrolled in school wouldn't otherwise have access to. And so I think that nerd mode is, is a funny way, you know, a way to put it, but it actually does to me raise that issue of access, just like what you're asking about. Folks who are affiliated with academia simply have more access to information, published information, obscure uh, information. And so being able to at least bring those things together, even if they're seemingly conflicting, or even if they go against uh, what we've been taught or what we assume to be true, that's kind of where the truth lies, is bringing these histories together and being able to compare and contrast. So another thing that Noke had mentioned uh, in his intro was that in learning about um, you know, this topic that was new to him, that it felt uh, like his belief or his knowledge had been challenged. And even if that um, is just for a moment, I think we need to be able to embrace those moments when we are challenged, when we are questioned, when we are critiqued, because that means that the person who's asking or the, hopefully the person on the, on the asking side uh, is actually interested in exchanging knowledge. And so rather than, you know, my initial response is usually uh, to get offended or to brush somebody off or just be like, whatever, you don't know what you're talking about. I think we miss a lot of opportunities to learn uh, when we're challenged, if we back away from that challenge, rather than stepping back and saying, okay, that is different from what I learned, or that's way different from what I've researched, you know, but tell me more, tell me more from your perspective, and maybe together we can dig through, uh, go back into nerd mode and figure things out. So I, I hope that address at least a little bit of your question there. Um, but yeah, just some thoughts. Yeah, and, and adding on to Jake, you know, um, uh, I think what we've been privileged to have is access to this information that isn't widely available for the public. And it's not like we wanna hoard this information. It's something that we would love to share with others, but also the same time, how do you share with others who may not be uh, at a place to take in the content or, or the information that's available. Um, that's not for us to judge, but at the same time, uh, we're trying to figure out ways of how do we get this information out so that people do have more access and have more chances to be able to uh, attain this information. Um, and although we have this information, it doesn't mean that we wanna negate the, the knowledge and, and understanding of our own people, right? Um, the hard part for, for me as I've asked around in the community, asked around to elders, asked around to uh, family about da 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 within the within the Tongan context, it's been tough because it's feels like it's been wiped out to the point where no one really has a, a firm understanding. I think there doesn't mean that there doesn't exist um, information out there. It just means that you have to dig a little bit more. You have to ask more people because uh, you know we've been able to find. Uh, some stories, you know, and, and the fact that we've been able to find a, a, a some without having asked a, a ton of people, uh, people have these stories about a family member who had received their talatau, but because of the way that it's viewed uh, within 
larger Tongan society, it kind of was kept as a, a hush. <laughs> no one said too much about it. And they just kind of kept it within their family genealogy or their family information and knowledge. And were able to fortunately share when somebody had our peaked interest. Um, and so that's that's pretty cool. And hopefully we're able to, not just us, but anybody else is able to find out information that might be lingering there within families. Um, but as much as we find out this information and the knowledge, the tough thing about it, especially here within the US diaspora is the practitioners that do this. Um, you know, there's not many that exist here and, and we don't have access. That's the lack of, that, that's something that we're lacking here. And like Jake said, we could find ways to, to go out and receive our marks back in the Moana. But I, the, a huge part that allowed me to gain interest in this was the fact that Jake invited me to his, one of his sessions or multiple, many of his sessions and the group it made me see what this was about. And, and there's a, a level of, of sacredness, of uh, seriousness that exists when, when one goes through this process. And um, uh, for me, I, I, I like that. And I was hopeful that uh, maybe we can bring someone here and maybe other family members or other Tongans or whoever was interested in coming through to check out um, the process, they would be able to see it in, in, in person. Because I think it's so much different seeing it um, virtually or on YouTube or, you know, um, someone's documentary that they've created for themselves about their own journey and process. I think you can feel it, you know, uh, but being there in person, at least for myself, it took it to a whole other level of appreciation and respect. And, that was something that I appreciated for those who were able to come in and, and sit in and, and feel what was happening and, and learn at the same time what this practice is and, and what it's about. And I think that was something that is missing here. Um, and hopefully there's opportunities or other ways that people can figure out moving forward of how we can make this more accessible, uh, at least for those in the diaspora not necessarily just here in the US, but other parts of the world where other people or other uh, Pacific Islanders are, are seeking uh, ways to receive their marks. Thinking about mobility, and uh, and I, and I and I love how you both have indicated to that right the importance of of doing something there right because you're there now communities there relations are there and and I think sometimes that you know thinking about again you you mentioned you know kind of privileges we we gain access to when we get into you know when we survive higher ed or and sometimes what's what happens in that process right is it becomes kind of elite exclusive and you know we go out somewhere and we stay there. But the fact that you were wanting to bring something where you're at locally so that people could participate in, to me, um, is, uh, speaks to kind of maybe the spirit of, of the Moana of kind of mobility. And when I think about 
you know, just being here in Aotearoa and, and, you know, understanding how people have moved throughout time and space across this region for a very, very long time, really. Yet it, it, it speaks to kind of this mobility, right? This, this uh, identity in movement or meaning in movement where each place has, you know, adapted and changed over time, but has nonetheless carried things. And I remember when I was first studying stuff in the region, archaeologically speaking, there's this term of kind of the transported landscape, right? The idea that, you know, these large sea vessels were bringing literally landscapes across with them, right? Whether that's root tubers or other animals or family, um, and then, you know, transplanting that across the region. Um, and then I also think, you know, on the other side of that, not only is there these transported landscapes of, of actual things, right? Whether it's bananas or coconuts or root tubers, uh, pigs, dogs, what have you, um, but also ethnoscapes, right? Or these, these cultural paradigms that move across the space, but then also expand, right? They never stay the same because they adapt to the new place that they're in. And I can't help but think of that, that kind of legacy as, you know, think about Utah, which, you know, is, 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 might seem so geographically removed in some ways, right? It's a high altitude, dry, arid climate. It snows, right? I mean, it snows here as well in some places, but it's not something you usually think about in, of the tropic region, right? Um, and yet, nonetheless, there's still kind of the spirit of mobility of how do we bring this here? How does it, and I guess that's my, my question, and thinking about that mobility, how do you see, what does it mean to you um, to have done it and to do it there? Um, what do you think it's going to continue to mean moving forward? Understanding that things are always changing, right? Um, change isn't new, but especially the Moana, to me, that's what I've always been drawn to is um, not that other places don't move or change, but I feel like that's something so central to the identities of Oceania that to me has always been inspiring, that kind of that, that adaptability has just been seen so central, which um, I think is quite powerful. Yeah, the fact of the matter is the history of our people is one of mobility, just as you described in transporting ethnoscapes from one place to another across the largest expanse of ocean on this planet. And so while we may think of history as more of a static kind of a, a paradigm, uh, because, you know, Samoa is, in my mind, the way it's been described to me by my parents and my grandparents, or the way that I've studied it, or the things that I've seen when I've visited. But that's very different from Samoa 500 years ago, which was very different from Samoa 1,000 years ago. And so I think that yeah, your point uh, is a valid one, not just in movement in space, uh, geographic movement, but in movement of time and how things evolve and how we have to adjust our perspectives. But I think there are a couple indigenous references that actually affirm what we're talking about here too. I mean, if you look at, you know, the reign of uh, Malietoanganasavea in Samoa, there's uh, a very famous story of uh, the introduction of a new way of preparing and serving the Ava, right? And that involves actually voyage from Fiji to Samoa and the presentation of a kavabo, the name of the tanoa is Vasa Lealofi. And that actually summarizes the theme of that story in that that story is an interplay between Samoans, Tongans, and Fijians, which results ultimately in the protocols that we still consider Samoan Ava protocols today, but Vasa Lealofi, meaning the, the ocean itself 
is the Ava circle, right? The ocean itself is the meeting ground and that despite the distances traveled, those connections that are made still lend validity to the things that we do, even when we move them from Fiji across to Samoa, across to Tonga, which eventually that ends up through the Tuikanukupolu story, um, the continuation of that even into Tonga. And so these three uh, nations or societies, you know, uh, having these interchanges, acknowledging differences, but also acknowledging commonalities, I think that applies to uh, what's happening now, that the art, the protocols, the rituals, even if they're slightly amended or slightly adjusted to fit a new landscape, those things follow the people as we are in a perpetual continuation of the voyage that brought our ancestors across thousands of miles. That journey hasn't stopped. And, you know, a lot to uh, credit to Enoch's studies and a lot of the things that he's been uh, writing about in his uh, doctoral work around the movement and the mobility of our people and two-way, you know, transportation. And this is really fascinating. And it, it seems like something that could be controversial or questionable today, but there's nothing new to moving to new places and bringing our traditions and protocols with us. Uh, it's, I just think it's interesting to look at it from that perspective. Okay. Yeah, I think Jake covered it pretty well. And, and I like how uh, he, he discusses mm -hmm. the relations that existed within the Moana, especially uh, thinking about meaning making in the past and how it's important that we recognize that you know, Tonga, Samoa, um, these um, nationalistic type of identities are recently created. And so when we're able to understand that, then we can, the, the relational aspect of the past makes it a little bit more easier. Uh, I feel like we can comprehend it and, and be more mindful that we're like, oh, we did integrate, we did connect, we did uh, cross paths, we did voyage to see one another it wasn't this distant thing of like this is a Samoan thing this is a Tongan thing this is a Hawaiian thing one thing that I've enjoyed uh, and maybe that although being away from the being far from the Moana uh, one thing that kind of has emerged being in the diaspora is this sense of coming together and I say this as like an example of someone in Tonga doesn't really consider themselves Tongan. They would probably consider themselves from the Ha they come from or from the village that they come from. Or oh, I'm from uh, Faneloa, I'm from Hateho. But then when they leave the motherland and go into a neighboring area, then they become Tongan. They leave the Moana, go into, say, the U.S., the western part of the U.S., they become a Pacific Islander. Um, and if you go further out back east, then you just become another brown person. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I think what's been nice, at least here in Utah, those connections that were blurred because there were no borders that existed back then, uh, were able to collaborate with one another and so like you take these things that existed in the past and now you're seeing it come together in, in the present time. Lehigh Faiva mentioned that when he was here he saw how beautiful it was where he's like man 
it's not that it doesn't happen in the Pacific, but you know, I'm coming to a place like Utah where I see Hawaiians, Samoans, Tongans, Maori, they're all coming together for one purpose and you're supporting one another rather than uh, finding ways to, to break one another down. You're learning together. You're taking this opportunity to build community, uh, strengthen relations. And it's a, it was a beautiful time and beautiful experience that I don't think I'll ever forget and, and be grateful for. But I, I think when you look at meaning, it, it kind of goes beyond just like, this is the meaning of this motif and this design <laughs> to maybe some of the contextual and, and, and uh, feelings that people are, are experiencing and having uh, that, that make this idea of meaning um, more impactful or more reverent. Beautiful in a sense. I'm going to add an example of exactly what uh, Nook is talking about and, and what, what you brought up in terms of if we were only trying to learn about Tongan Tatatau through Tongan sources, as Inoke had mentioned, there's very little out there, right? There is information out there. There are a handful of drawings out there. There are a couple of oral traditions that are out there, but it's still limited. And what happens is as we go into nerd mode and we dive into other sources, we come across things like Thomas Williams who wrote a book in 1860 that's literally titled Fiji and the Fijians. It's a book about Fiji and Fijians. And yet there we have accounts of Tongan Tatao in contrast to the Tatao culture or customs of Fiji. And it also mentions that Rotumans also had you know, the same format, like from the hips to the knees um, of tattooing there. But we didn't find that in a Tongan source, right? We found that from a Fijian source that is contrasting with the Tongans and with Rotumans in their sphere. And you also look in 1866, uh, we have a book by William Pritchard, who's the, he's the, the consul or the ambassador, right, in Samoa. And he's talking about, you know, Tongan men in the 1850s coming to Samoa to be tattooed. And so again, it, we wouldn't have found that source or we possibly could have, but that's a Samoan source or a source from Samoa that references Tongan because it's, that's kind of a, an interesting thing to note, right? That people are coming all the way from another country to be able to perpetuate this custom that was banned in their own country. And so I, I, I just think that's a cool example of how we gain so much more knowledge by comparing and contrasting with other, you know, adjacent uh, sources uh, and other societies and, and countries outside of the topic that we're actually focusing on. Uh, we just get such a, a, a more dynamic picture, a brighter illustration of that. Even today, right? Like we use these these boundaries, you know, within our society, and we're we're taught these boundaries. Whether it's you know travel or whatever, and you got to use a passport that means you're from this place, and you got to enter in this other place, and so we're taught that. But at the same time, things are bleeding in and out constantly, right? And and obviously, if that's the case today, of course it was before 
these kind of maybe rigid boundaries that we think of today didn't exist, at least not in the same way. And um, it reminds me of a good mate of mine, Numa McKenzie, who does a lot of artwork. He's a um, Kokairani and, and uses, does a lot of artwork around um, a variety of uh, Tatao-inspired, Tamoko-inspired art, you know, and, and he does a lot of print work. And he's hosted a couple of different panels. And I remember one of them, you know, there's a, a bunch of different Tofunga from, from kind of different backgrounds and traditions and lineages. And, and there was this idea of that was expressed to me and it made sense, but I hadn't heard it of, you know, rather than thinking about kind of these larger, I guess, boundaries of motifs or traditions, it was kind of more along the lines of kind of schools of thought. And if you think about kind of schools of thought or, or schools of art, then those could transcend a variety of different boundaries, right? Like not everybody in the same island or region may have been in the same school of thought or art, but that same school of art may have been in a variety of different places across the region. And these would have kind of bleeded into each other in a lot messier ways than maybe we think of. It wasn't necessarily as, you know, it's not these clean boundaries of, you know, here, here. And, and you know, you sharing what you were do- sharing kind of made me think of that. And that's kind of how I've thought about a, a lot of different things, not just the Tao, but, um, you know, Kava uh, or, or other ritual practices that um, can take on a variety of different forms and diversity, even within uh, the same location. And then you might also find connections from that location to another place across the region. Um, and so like this, this, I guess this interplay of both kind of a, a nuanced local uh, expression, but also this kind of global connection. And, 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 I, and I love how you kind of shared that. Uh, there's, there's lessons learned in kind of going through, I guess the ritual act of either supporting or, or being marked yourself so wondering if, if there's something whatever you're comfortable sharing around maybe lessons learned for yourself going through the process or or things maybe you observed of the community um who were either in support or or you being in support of them sure something that i learned from inoke uh, during my process was his observation that when you just do a google search on on somebody getting a fair or a malu there's a lot of personal stories uh, in blogs, there's YouTube videos uh, that talk about the voyage, right? This, this was my brother's Tatao voyage. This was my personal Malu voyage and how uh, Inoki pointed out to me that those typically begin with the first session of being tattooed and it ends with the closing ceremony or, or the Samanga. But in his mind, the, the experience or the, the journey actually begins much much earlier and um and i really took that to heart and i believe that the the experience yes it does begin uh, that with the initial decision to even start investigating or preparing uh, to receive the tau and it's something that has to be experienced in person that you can read as much as you want you can watch everybody's amazing youtube videos of their own journeys you can hear stories and and read documents or journals of like my own ancestors my own family members who have been through it and you can appreciate and you it's tangible you can feel you know that dynamic of uh of top or, or that you know collective support and having family together and having friends together and and replicating essentially feeling the same pain lying in the same positions 
uh, feeling that discomfort that your ancestors did and feeling the same elation and relief and joy uh, when you've successfully come, when your family has supported you through Takuai, through that journey, uh, and, and it's able to be completed. And that's something that uh, just has to be experienced to actually be able to describe. And I don't know that I, I'm still able to describe it, but I think that's, that's an important piece. Uh, just as Inoke corrected my mindset or challenged my worldview about when the Tatao journey begins and ends. Um, my own family challenged my, my understanding of the Tatao being a capstone or being the conclusion or um, the achievement uh, when in reality, uh, although it is uh, a mark of achievement, it is a rite of passage, uh, it's actually the entryway into the rest of my life as uh, someone who renders service to the family and continues to hone uh, my language and my cultural acumen and everything else that goes along with that. I think um, that mindset is definitely different now than it was when I was 18, when I felt unworthy to receive it because I felt like I hadn't earned it at that point. Uh, and now seeing like, you know what? Yeah, it is something to be uh, viewed in that way, but at the same time, uh, it's a gateway. It's a first step, it's a, it's a doorway to a whole new world that opens up um, a world of learning and a world of service. And so I think those are two things that, that I uh, wouldn't have learned had I not experienced it myself. Um, and yeah, definitely two uh, significant uh, lessons that I picked up. Um, man, I, so many to myself, I feel like there's so much that I've kind of come away with going through the process. And um, I think a lot of times we, we don't take into consideration, like Jake was mentioning, the, the work that we've done prior to making that decision. And so when people are like, oh, you just made this decision and all of a sudden you, you're gonna get it. <laughs> you didn't take the time to learn about all this stuff and you're discrediting and, and devaluing all the time uh, that one has taken to uh, learn of their own genealogy, of their culture, uh, language, uh, learn ways to serve their family, community, you know, their church, whatever is important to that individual. And to say that the process begins once you make the decision, it's kind of tough because you're coming already with a, a, a ton of experience, uh, of knowledge. And um, I think for me, um, to add on to what Jake has shared, because that's definitely stuff that I've learned and have taken is um, the ways in which we can think about um, future possibilities. I think that's what's exciting for me and what I'm kind of taking from this and how does this look like moving forward? Um, uh, and especially for Tongans, you know, for for me is like, there isn't much information out there from what's happened in the past, but by piecing all these other pieces, uh, other, you know, aspects together, um, we can kind of formulate, you know, ideas of what had happened in the past. 
but the exciting thing is what can happen in the future because today we're making uh, practices and protocols that future generations will be practicing. They'll be looking at, oh, back in 2020, this is what Tongans did. And if it was something that they see relevant and um, something that they would like to continue, then this will be something that uh, will be practiced in future generations. And that'll be exciting. But that's for them to decide. If they don't feel like it's necessary, just like a lot of Tongans did after the ban, then that's where you start seeing uh, culture shifting and, and practices and protocols being uh, uh, replaced with new ones, you know, that are introduced into society. Uh, and so I, I don't ever feel like uh, what my decision and, and others have done, this is like, we don't, we don't, we don't want to speak for all Tongans. But is this uh, an option and a, uh, a way for others to engage with Tawa uh, Tao and hopefully that they see meaning however they would like to see it and how this would benefit them and their families or, yeah, I, to me it's a piece of the past that I'm able to have and wear and, and be able to be reminded every day of what our ancestors had done and, and also tie into you know, add in new meaning. What could this be for, for Tongans moving forward? Um, those are, I guess, some things um, that I've kind of taken away from this process. And the crazy thing is, there's, I think there's a lot more for me to learn. I feel like there's so much more uh, for me to engage in and, and, and take in, especially from uh, a lot of the other Tufumas that exist. You know, hopefully I get to cross paths with them and learn from them and and build on uh, the knowledge that I have right now. So I know from two, three years ago when we kind of thought about this, there's so much that we've learned <laughs> back then to, to now, you know, give us another two, three more years and that knowledge will be even bigger than what we know now. And that's exciting is to see what we're able to learn, but also create. That's, I think, the exciting part is the creating aspect and if it's something that people enjoy and will like then it'll continue and if not it just stays within those that see <laughs> relevance in in that specific creation so oh man love that you know new stuff right new old stuff or old new stuff <laughs> however we want to put it in <laughs> and i and i like that um uh that idea of the portals and the gateway as well you know and for me, that's what I was thinking about, you know, these types of rituals. Um, like, I, I think, again, the, the bleeding, the pain, you know, for me is like this ritual death. Um, and, and you know, the end of a phase, a, a end of a particular consciousness, perhaps. And then when you finish, you know, there's this kind of this new phase opening up, this new portal, this new gateway. doesn't mean it's over, as you mentioned, but, um, you know, not just as individuals, but I love how, you know, that process, you both, you know, constantly talking about how this is a collective, communal, familial, relational, you know, opening up, right, of, you know, the, a, a new phase, a new era, perhaps. And it reminds me of, I mean, this is, a, again, talking about sources and challenging and all that, like, this is, a, I heard this um, in a Faikawa <laughs> from someone who said they heard it from someone. So take it with a grain of salt, but I like the message. So I can't actually verify that this actually goes back to 
at Belihaofa. But um, apparently, um, according to the multiple <laughs> echoes that arrived to me <laughs> in this Vaikava, apparently, uh, and this is attributed to him as, you know, the way he, he defined tradition was um, ideas that are still good ideas or, or stuff that's still relevant. And it was just kind of a new or a different way of thinking about tradition. And, and, and obviously, traditions always take on new forms, new meanings, perhaps new traditions themselves or remember traditions. And again, whether he actually said it or not, that's kind of how I heard it. And, but I liked it. I liked that message of, you know, stuff that's still a good idea. And if it wasn't still a good idea, people wouldn't still be doing it or wanting to um, find relevance or, or make it relevant. And so I, I love, you know, all the stuff that you've, you've shared. There's heaps more. Um, hopefully people who listen will also take it as a, a gateway, a portal, you know, just a, a small little, <laughs> You know, because we could talk for ages, but, you know, just to give people a little uh, portal or gateway into kind of the background and story a bit of uh, what y'all did to kind of uh, prepare for, for one journey and, you know, opening up another one altogether. Uh, last word to use, if you have any, you know, last messages for, for the world, I'll, I'll, I'll give you all the last word. Keep asking questions uh, and don't be afraid to look for answers uh, in unexpected places when we are challenged or when we are critiqued. Uh, that's where knowledge comes from. Yeah, and I, I know we didn't really go into maybe specifics that people might be wanting to know, at least how I've been feeling how this Dalai uh, session has been going. It's more thinking about broader ideas and concepts and, and, and the broader experience in general. You know, the nitpicky stuff probably takes, takes the, the focus away from I think the message that kind of was uh, given today, and so apologize if, there, <laughs> if people were looking for for specific uh, things. But you know, uh, feel free to reach out to us, or you know, just thankful and appreciative for the opportunity to to share space. And hopefully, what we've been able to share is is beneficial and helpful for for anyone that's listening. And just thank you for your time, Malo. Thanks, fellas.